1: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Listen, there's a fantastic opportunity for you to get along and support Palestine in Melbourne. No place to lay my head. An exhibition commemorating 75 years of Anakba, the catastrophe that saw hundreds of thousands of Palestinians made refugees. Free Palestine Melbourne and the Palestine Israel Ecumenical Network have put together a fantastic show. It's on now at St. Paul's Cathedral, corner of Flinders Street and Swanson Street in Melbourne. It's on until Saturday, the 28th of October. Make sure you get along. Fantastic work by Free Palestine Melbourne and the Palestine Israel Ecumenical Network called No Place to Lay My Head. So get along there, St. Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. Um, there'll be a link in the podcast so you can get details. Make sure you get along there and support that really inspiring and necessary work in educating people about Al-Nakba. No Place to Lay My Head at St. Paul's Cathedral. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. This morning, we're joined by Amjad Al-Kassis, who is a legal researcher and a member of the NAS Network for Advocacy Support of Badil Resource Center for Palestinian Residency and Refugee Rights. Good morning, Amjad. How are you? Fine. Good morning, Nasser. Thanks so very much for joining us, Amjad. You know, this is the first time I've spoken to a Palestinian in Macedonia. You know, Palestinians are everywhere. Here you are joining us from Skopje in Macedonia.
0: True. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can say Palestinians have to be everywhere and often not being able to be uh, in their
1: own homeland. Amjad, this is the first time you've been on Palestine, remembered, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your Nakba story or Naksa story?
0: Actually, my uh, Nakba story, Naksa story, starts before I was born. In 1967, when Israel occupied the remainders of Palestine, among others, the West Bank, my father happened to be not present, he wasn't in Palestine at his hometown town. He was in Europe back then um, to study. And uh, as, you, as you know, Israel halted a census after they occupied uh, the places. And basically, um, every Palestinian who was not present, who was not counted, lost his her residency, right? And my father was among them. And as you probably also know, there was no announcement attached to it. So Israel just uh, revoked the residency rights, but without telling the people. So every Palestinian got to know it individually when for the first time they wanted to go back to Palestine to visit or to, after finishing their studies, to go back and live in Palestine. So in the case of my father, it was actually one year later, 1968, when he went to Palestine for a visit. And at the airport, he was told that uh, he's not a Palestinian anymore, that or, that he lost his residency right to stay in Palestine. And he could only enter as a tourist, tourist which is maybe also interesting to know that back then already Israel divided the Palestinian diaspora based on the host countries or countries they were living in. Uh, For my father, because he was living in Western Europe, he at least had the chance to enter as a tourist, but again, he back then lost his residency right and was only able to enter Palestine as a tourist. And because of that, and me and my siblings, we are all born abroad. We are born in, in Europe and we are we're only allowed to visit our homeland um, as tourists. In my um, personal story, I had the chance to live in Palestine for 12 years. I was able to live there based on um, a work contract and uh a diplomatic status. So until uh, beginning of this year, I was living in Palestine for 12 years. I actually married there. I got my children in Palestine for them. um, Luckily, at least for the time being, they have the um, Israeli issued Palestinian uh, residency number. So my wife and the kids can enter Palestine again, at least for the time being, um, more or less as they want. In my case, I think it's much more difficult after having stayed 12 years there uh, within diplomatic immunity. I'm conscious about that if I would now travel back to Palestine, even if it is for a visit, I might have big problems to enter the country, even as a tourist. But in any case, basically, to summarize, my Nakba story started uh, way before I was born.
1: Like so many Palestinians, Amjad, and you've come to us. I reached out to you after reading your article on the Electronic Intifada. They published an article you wrote, Amjad, Israel's democracy, quote unquote, protests defend an apartheid system. We know too well what apartheid means and that Israel is an apartheid system. We're going to put a link, listeners, to the article in the podcast. So make sure you go along there so you can read Amjad's article. But Amjad, let's talk about the article. Israelis have been protesting for all of this year, most of this year, about a loss of democracy.
0: And especially if you if you put it like this, it's, of course, a slap in the face of every Palestinian worldwide. Israel, for Palestinians, has never been by far a democracy, it has always been the oppressor, the occupier, the colonizer, the one who took our land, our, our homes, and even uh, our culture is trying to do so and um, destroying the way of life, destroying um, what actually makes us Palestinians for the last centuries. Now, if you look at oppressive regimes in world history, of course, there are many different examples where specific societies try to be democratic for their own kind and being very oppressive for all the others in terms of rights only being for white men in the past, or for free men and excluding slaves, excluding women, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. In the case of Israel, it is it considers itself to be a democracy while excluding Palestinians, which is even enshrined in the principles of the, of the state, uh, in the state ideology of Zionism, even if you read carefully the Israeli basic laws, sorry, the Declaration of Independence of Israel, if you read between the lines, and if you read the lines, and even if you look at politicians, if you look at the Israeli Supreme Court, it is very clear that from the very beginning, of newly created state it was a state only for Jews excluding all others from being part of that society therefore all these protesters protest for their own privileges they protest basically to stay on top of the food chain in a country where they know in Israel that they are oppressing another people and that they are living on land that they are partly living in homes which other people have been expelled from who today live in refugee camps or in other very difficult circumstances without a chance to going back if the politics of Israel continue. So maybe to try to summarize here, because the protesters in Israel, they try to define themselves as protesting for democracy, protesting for the rule of law. But in the end, they're only protesting for their own supremacist privileges. They're only protesting to be able to further benefit on the oppression of others. And I think many, many Palestinians would have wished if this protest movement in Israel would have turned into a real protest for democracy and calling out Israel's own apartheid regime, Israel's own oppressive regime. But unfortunately, what we have seen in the several past months that this protesters' movement has not become a real protest movement, but again, they're only trying to uphold their own privileges.
1: The reality is that these protesters have no regard for the inhumane treatment of the Palestinians, for the apartheid system, that they are only interested in maintaining the supremacy of themselves. And that's, you talk about in the article, very foundationally in this the, the settlement enterprise, the colonial enterprise. And I thought I'd read every quote, but this is one I'd not heard before from Israel Zangwill in 1916. If we wish to give a country to a people without a country, it is utter foolishness to allow it to be a country of two peoples. The reality of Israel today and the Knesset today is it actually is Zionism manifest, which is racism, which is settler colonialism.
0: Yeah, of course. And of course, this is not new. This is from the very beginning. We just need to actually read the protocols and the minutes of the first congress of the Zionist movement in uh, Basel in the end of the 19th century, where for the first time the Zionist movement came together and met and decided on very important issues and many decisions have been taken by that movement and of course taking consideration that we are talking about a movement back then in Europe, in Central Europe mainly, leftist, rightist, fascist, communist, it was a huge uh, movement in terms of political spectrum, but for us important is what were the decisions this movement took in that first conference and Two decisions which basically have shaped Palestinian lives until this very day. Palestinians, of course, have not been invited to their conference and who were not able to decide on uh, on those decisions. But we are basically living based on that decisions until today. Decision number one. The Zionist movement declared to be Jewish means to be part of a nation. This is a very important decision taken by the Zionist movement back then. Now, being Jewish could have been being part of a religious group in the past, could have different uh, meanings. But for the Zionist movement, it is decision was being Jewish means to be part of a nation. This is an important decision. Why? Because back then, late 19th century Europe, as a nation, you could have a right to own independent country. As a religious group back then, you wouldn't have this right. Maybe if you would go a few hundred years back, 15, 1600s Europe religious groups had in the perspective of people also the right to have their own religious country. Nevertheless, the second decision was the decision where to create the homeland for this nation. It was established as a nation, so a nation needs a homeland. The decision, as you as you for sure know, there were different geographical areas discussed, among others, Argentina, Uganda, and Palestine. Uganda and Argentina, by the way, the big advantage for the Zionist movement was that both were already colonies and it would have been able to simply purchase a huge amount of land in one of these colonies to create the state of Israel. But the Zionist movement, The second important decision for us as Palestinians, they decided to create the homeland in Palestine. And the reason, and this is often overlooked, because if you talk today to people about the situation in Palestine and Israel, people would say, "Yeah, of course, naturally, Jews wanted to go back home to what is today Palestine or Israel depending on the perspective you take. But if you look through the minutes of that conference, it wasn't that clear for the Zionist movement to do it. It was a secular, elitist, political, colonial movement wasn't a religious movement. But when we read the minutes carefully, the reason why they chose Palestine was a purely pragmatic reason. It was in order to convince the million of Jews because the Zionist movement back then, by its best numbers, had around 20,000 members. Now with 20,000 members, you cannot establish a country or run a country. So the Zionist movement knew we need to convince the millions of European Jews to follow us to a place they have never been before, thousands of kilometers away from their actual home countries, being Germany, Switzerland, Poland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they said if we do it in Palestine, we can link it to Jewish religion and Jewish history. And now it's not the Zionist movement asking, it's God himself who promised this land to the Jews. And for this very pragmatic reason, they decided on doing it in Palestine. And again, for us Palestinians, these two decisions are very important and until today they shape our life.
1: Understanding that and the reality of what Israel will said, the reality of creating a country on a land where there already was a people, it necessitated the Nakba, it necessitated ethnic cleansing, it necessitated all of those evils and that population transfer, you know, and you can't create a majority population in a country where you are a minority without some demographic engineering. And this is a nice way of saying, get rid of everyone that's not like us. That was in 1948. In your article, you talk about your touch on, I'd like you to expand on what they're doing today, which, you know, quote unquote, silent transfer
0: yes maybe just first first of all to clarify this this is a very important point that for the zionist movement from the very beginning the idea was to create a state exclusively for jewish people and as you already said in a geographical area where which predominantly is occupied by non-jewish people the only way to create a country exclusively for Jewish people is only possible by two options. In all of world history, we have seen that there are only two options available. One is genocide, simply murdering all non-Jewish indigenous population in that territory. And the second one, and when we look at the conference in Basel, we can actually see that the Zionist movement opted for the second option, which is not genocide, but which is forced population transfer. And forced population transfer is not simply morally wrong. Forced population transfer today, by our standard, is considered as two international crimes. It's a war crime, anti-crime against humanity. And by the way, there are only three international crimes um, international community was only able to decide on three international crimes, to say that these crimes are that hideous that there is an interest globally to prevent them from happening. And Israel fulfills two of them by their politics and policies of forced population transfer. Again, it's a war crime, and a crime against humanity. And they knew it from the very beginning. We need to be very clear with that. When the Zionist movement came up with this slogan, the people without a land will get a land without people. Of course, people without a land, based on decision number one, we are a people. Being Jewish means we belong to a people, to a nation. Land without a people being decision number two, where to create it in Palestine because it's a land without people. And the Zionist movement knew from the very beginning that Palestine was not a land without people, that there were Palestinians. So what they did was they created a reality based on their own vision. In order to have a land without people, all the people who were living there had to be expelled in order then to claim it's a land without people for a people without land. And of course, we know all the Israeli rhetorics today that yes, there might have been people, but it wasn't a society, et cetera, et cetera, all this debunked myth of Israel today. But throughout time, going back to your question of silent transfer, throughout time, the Zionist movement and later the State of Israel, who simply after the creation of the State of Israel took over the policies and work of the movement, I think here also we need to be very clear that what Israel is doing today wasn't started by Israel in 1948. It was started by the Zionist movement more than 120 years ago when the first Jewish Zionist colonizers or settlers from Europe settled in Palestine, created kibbutzes, the first Jewish-only settlements, and trying to build them as fortresses in the land and from there on trying to displace the Palestinian population. Throughout the last decades, Israel used different politics and policies, how to do that, how to get rid of more and more Palestinians from their own homeland. Now, the politics of silent policies, here we are going into a more subtle way of displacing small numbers of people on a weekly basis where the idea is not as we have seen in 1948 or 1967 displacing hundreds of thousands of people but doing it slowly with the intention of avoiding an international outcry. So every time we hear in the news, for example, that a Palestinian home has been demolished, now when a home is demolished, the result of it is forced population transfer. Because the family, the Palestinian family who lives in that home, they have to go somewhere else. Every time farmland, for instance, is confiscated. Every time the wall has cut Palestinian farmers from their farmland, as an example, results in unemployment, results in a situation where people are leaving. And forced population transfer, going back to the international crime, does not only occur if you force someone at at gunpoint to leave. But if you create a situation which becomes unbearable and leaves no other choice than to leave. You have conducted the international crime of forced population transfer. So there are different policies Israel is adopting in order to to force the Palestinian population out of the territory, like home demolitions, like land confiscation denying access to land denying access to education to Health care etc etc there are many different policies Israel has adopted in the last decades to make the situation for Palestinians as a whole unbearable without leaving any other choice than to leave that place
1: you're an example Amjad you know your wife and children have Israeli issued Palestinian ID so they could quote-unquote, live within Palestine. But you can't for any period of time. From its foundation, Zionism has been this evil, racist, settler, colonialist, supremacist ideology, through to the Nakba, through to silent transfer. But this current Knesset has openly declared fascists. As you quote in your article, the finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, he stated in March, talking about a, a village, you know, inhabited by Palestinians. I think the village of Hawara needs to be erased. This guy is democratically elected. He's a minister in a government. is openly talking about genocide. We've gone, every level of apparatus in the state is designed for Jewish supremacy in this land. And we've now got ministers that are openly calling for the wiping out of villages.
0: Yeah, also here I would say that the reality Palestinians had and have to endure for the last decades have not changed as dramatically as probably we can see it in terms of what the Israeli government is proposing. Now, when we look at Israeli politics from the very beginning, from 1948, and this is such a clear example, in 1948, the state of Israel was created. A few weeks later, the national parliament, the Knesset, met and sat together for the first time. And they had already military orders how to further colonize the territory and how to deal with the colonized population. Uh, Military orders, you know, like the absentee property military order, which was later turned into the absentee property law. Which, of course, shows us that all of this was already prepared way in advance and was ready to be enacted upon after that creation. From that time of 1948 until today, 2023, there's never been an Israeli state institution, Israeli government, Israeli minister, who was friendly in terms of trying to overcome Uh, Zionist ideology towards Palestinians are trying to create a friendly atmosphere for Palestinians. For example, now in the news, there's a lot on the new movie about Golda Meir, one of Israeli, uh, Israel's prime ministers back in time. When we look at Golda Meir and, and the period she was ruling Israel, she was a sophisticated lady. We can definitely say she was a fascist. She was a racist. Uh, She was definitely not your friendly neighbor, but she was very sophisticated. So when we compare Golda Meir with today's Israeli ministers in terms of content, in essence, there's very little, very little difference. Mm -hmm. I would say the difference is Golda Meir probably, unfortunately, was very smart and intelligent and was able to do what she was doing, but looking brave and great while doing it, while murdering Palestinians, while stealing land, while building settlements, and so on, and so on. She was looking brave. Today's Israeli minister, they're doing the same, but they look stupid. And why they look stupid in my my perspective? Because they are thinking that they have passed a certain threshold of trying to convince the international community to further support the state of Israel. So while Golda Meir and others in the Israeli government in the past, they were still thinking that they are somehow in need of the international community. So they need to play it smart. Today's government, they, in their own perspective, they they think they they have overcome this kind of potential support they, so they can do whatever they want and uh, the world cannot stop us anyway. So they have this feeling of being uh, unstoppable. And I think this is the only actual differences because in the life of Palestinians, going back from 1948 until today, life is a sort of roller coaster but a roller coaster which, which somehow, moves only downwards and not upwards. And this is the reality of um Palestinians. And maybe now with this fascist, I would call them unsophisticated idiots in the Israeli government. It is easier for the world to see it. I don't know. Some people are saying that actually the current Israeli government is they are the best advocates for Palestine and Palestinian rights. I wouldn't necessarily go there, but again essential difference between Golda Meir or one of these people today, essential terms is very little to non-existing. But in terms of how they present their case, it's a world difference.
1: Amjad, you know, the reality is you and I have always known exactly what Zionism is. And Golda Meir and Perez and Begin and all these guys to every different level have been able to put lipstick on the pig. Yeah, and made it palatable to the West. The reality is that now this Zionist, this fascist Zionism has elevated and the world is seeing Zionism for what it is and what we've been telling them. So I can tell you in my advocacy and my political work, speaking to people, it's becoming increasingly one thing that I don't need to overcome. The concept that Israel is like us quote unquote and often you know we we have to explain to australians that in fact israel is like us like it's a settler colony a foreign people came and took a culture and a land from an indigenous people and settled that land and claim it as their own so we have a lot in common amjad thanks so very much for joining us and we've run out of time but we'd love to get you back on in the future
0: thank you thank you nasa very much it's a pleasure Good to be here.
1: Listeners, you've been listening to Amjad Al-Kassiz, who is a legal researcher and a member of the NAS Network for Advocacy Support of Badil Resource Centre for Palestinian residency and refugee rights. Listen, a fantastic opportunity for you to get along and support Palestine in Melbourne. No Place to Lay My Head, an exhibition commemorating 75 years of Anakba, the catastrophe that saw hundreds of thousands of Palestinians made refugees. Free Palestine Melbourne and the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network have put together a fantastic show. It's on now at St. Paul's Cathedral, corner of Flinders Street, and swanson street in melbourne it's on until saturday the 28th of october make sure you get along fantastic work by free palestine melbourne and the palestine israel ecumenical network called no place to lay my head so get along there saint paul's cathedral in melbourne there'll be a link in the podcast so you can get details make sure you get along and support that really inspiring and necessary work in educating people about al-Nakba, No place to lay my head at St. Paul's Cathedral. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.